Good morning, Sir William. Thank you very much for joining us today. I doubt an introduction of you is needed, but would you like to say a few words about yourself? Well, firstly, good afternoon, Jane. And here in London, it's great to be talking to you in Shanghai. And I hope you've had a good day. Ours is just getting underway. My background is a commercial lawyer. I was in practice for quite a long time. My field of specialism is banking and finance, but I do a broader range of commercial work. I became a commercial judge here in London in 2008 and was on the bench for about 10 years. And since then, I've been back in practice, both as an arbitrator. I also have a professorship at London University and various other things I do with our central bank here in England, for example. Thank you, Sir William. Looks like you have been very busy with your life and you have many roles you have played that will be very interesting for this conversation. Just a quick introduction. I am Jane Jiang, a litigation partner of Allen & Overy based in Shanghai. So that's me. And as you know, Sir William, ANO has conducted a survey on virtual hearing this summer. And we reached out to about 200 internal respondents and 100 external respondents to gauge a sense of their experience of virtual hearing. And the result of the survey is quite interesting. We have sent the survey to you and you probably have seen it. I think based on that, I'd really like to hear what's your take on some of the survey results. First of all, could you perhaps give us an overview of what your experience has been with virtual hearing so far? Yeah, thanks, Jane. First of all, it's a very interesting survey that Alan and Overy have done. And I think what's really useful about it is that it's broken down so much. So you can see responses not only by the type of practitioner that's being asked, but also subject by subject. So let me go back a little bit and make this point. Virtual hearings didn't start in 2020. My experience is of telephone hearings over really quite a long period of time, both in court context for urgent hearings and in the arbitration context for procedural hearings and in the regulatory context for procedural hearings as well. They tended to be short, but they were very common. So what really changed in 2020 was that this became a complete experience with the video aspect brought in as well. So this was what's new, if you like. My experience so far as 2020 is concerned is I've had a number of hearings. They've been partly procedural. They've been partly substantive. They've been in the court context and they've been in the tribunal context. And they've been on a number of platforms WebEx, Skype, and Teams. And I think uh, it's Skype is gradually being phased out and Teams is taking over. It sounded like you've had quite a lot of experience. I would bet they're quite different experience as well. As you can see, we have a very different responses from our survey respondents. One thing that strikes me is that the vast majority of them, I think 112 survey respondents feel that the fact that the hearing took place virtually as opposed to physically did not have any impact on the ultimate result of the hearing. Only 14 respondents feel that the result was impacted. I mean, no matter what difficulties they've gone through, whether it's good or bad, but they feel the result is not impacted. So, William, what do you make of that? Does that mean 
that is, in fact, in the end, the justice is done. It doesn't impact or impair the justice. What's your sense of that? Yeah, that's my take as well, Jane. I, I think it would be disappointing if we were in a place where we thought that the way that the hearing was delivered affected the result. So I think that's uh, my experience too. Perhaps just one qualification though, you may be able to fit a smaller result into a virtual hearing than you might be able to do in a live arbitration room or a courtroom. There's perhaps less flexibility to add as you go along to the result. But yes, in, in principle, that's been my experience as well. Okay, that's good. And also, you probably recall we asked the respondents many aspects of the virtual hearing and how those aspects are affected by how the hearing was delivered. And one of the most controversial aspects of virtual hearing seems to be the perceived impact on oral witness evidence and the ability to read witnesses, judges or arbitrators. I think we have two thirds of the respondents consider that the ability to read witnesses, judges or arbitrators was impacted by virtual environment. That's quite a large percentage. And also personally, I've heard from many advocates complaining about this aspect of the virtual hearing. So you've been an advocate and a judge and an arbitrator. So what's your feeling about taking oral witness evidence? Right. So there are two important points there. Starting with oral witness evidence, it's quite important to bear in mind that that has been done by video long before 2020. In you know, my experience as a judge, a commercial court judge, we quite frequently would take evidence by video. And if for some reason the witness was unable to fly to London or sometimes the visa problems, that kind of thing, the evidence would be taken by video. I don't really think, Jane, that there were any, what I would call, major problems with that. There are certainly problems like coaching the witness, problems about making sure that the evidence is given with proper integrity, that kind of thing. And there's always the problem for the witness of an unfamiliar environment. There's nobody there from the law firm, for example, to make the witness feel more comfortable. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. the witness is coming into an environment that is very, very unfamiliar. And I think that can be quite difficult. Intimidating. In yeah. Intimidating is exactly right. And you, you don't have the, the same opportunities you would as an arbitrator to judge who's actually there to make the witness feel more at home. So there is that. But having said that, those are things that can be dealt with. It is true that counsel often say that cross-examination of a witness who's giving evidence by video is less effective and less easy. And that, that may be correct. But remember, there's much more to evidence than just cross-examination. The, the idea of oral evidence is that the witness gets an opportunity to tell his or her version of what happened so far as relevant. I don't really think that that suffers, frankly, through coming over the video. And I regard it as being problems, but as I say, they're relatively low scale compared to the uh, advantage that you get of a, a witness being able to participate remotely and get the evidence Absolutely. that way. Yes. So the other point you made, though, is uh, 
different one, and that goes to the reading the tribunal or reading the judge. And that is an essential part of advocacy. All good advocates are very attentive to how their points are going down with the tribunal. And yes, I think it is genuinely more difficult to do that. I mean, for one thing, in an arbitration, it's harder to see the three faces on the screen at one time. It's easier if you're actually kind of looking in their direction. And I think it's fair to say it goes in the other direction as well. I'm speaking now as an arbitrator and judge. It's harder for us to read the advocate. Sometimes there are human messaging. We're all very familiar with that which doesn't quite translate exactly onto Zoom. Yeah, that's right. I think at one point, one judge made a very interesting point. He said, actually, for him, seeing people up close and personal on a screen is much easier for him to read the person's expression rather than the witness standing in a box far away. He said, I'm, my age is advancing. I can't really see what, what, what he's really, <laughs> what's really on his face. So it cuts both ways. And also some advocates were talking about they can't sense the room. I think it's the aggregation of the feeling from everybody. You kind of are a little bit lost of that aggregation. They're both fair points. Although, uh, actually, the witness box tends to be only a few feet away, so it's usually quite, not that hard to see. <laughs> yes, so it looks like the oral witness evidence has the largest issue, but there are also other difficulties cited. For example, the management of large volumes of documents and the presentation of complex factual arguments. What do you think about them? Are they less challenging or equally challenging? Actually, I think the most challenging thing about remote hearings or virtual hearings is the documentation. Right. In commercial cases, as you know very well, documentation is heavy and the main challenge. Now, we've come quite a, a long way on that, I think. There are now protocols for how documents are to be presented to tribunals. And of course, the tribunal itself in procedural orders can give directions as to how documents are to be presented. But fundamentally, the position is straightforward. The documents have to be in a form that they're easily navigable and they are searchable in the context of a hearing where you can't have long breaks while people find documents. So that's really important. Here, I think we've got things that we can learn from paperless hearings, which certainly courts have been doing for quite a long time, speaking anyway of the commercial court in London, not for every case, by the way. It's ideal, really, that when parties refer to documents, they come up on the screen so that the tribunal can see them, and indeed everyone can see them. Also, when the transcript arrives at the end of the day, if links are put into the transcript to the documentation, then that saves the tribunal or the judge a lot of time when it comes to the award or writing the decision because they can go straight to the document. That's not yeah. something you can very easily do in a live transcript, but it is something, as I say, that can be done at the end of the day. But I'd certainly think, Jane, that any hearing that doesn't have the documentation issues resolved in advance is going to struggle at times and these issues can, in fact, be dealt with now in a quite straightforward way. 
Yeah, I think so too. I mean, with the technology now is available, and uh, as long as people prepare in advance and have an agreed set of protocols how to present and how to call up documents, I think that's entirely a solvable problem. So hopefully it's like anything else, it's prepare, prepare and prepare. And that's the important part of going on to a virtual hearing, I guess. So also knowing that people are still trying to get used to it, and a lot of them actually say to me, well, I'm looking forward to COVID-19 passing and then we can go back to the old days. And what do you think? What's your view on virtual hearing actually being the future as opposed to a short-term fix to the problem posed by COVID-19? Would you welcome it becoming a part of our future in the legal profession? Well, I think that's really the big question because COVID-19 will pass. Just as a matter of background, Already technology was beginning to impinge in the legal process, but it quite slowly, I think, uh, that varied from country to country. I mean, China, as, as you know very well, the judiciary has made a very big effort over recent years to introduce technology into the courtroom context. And that, I think, has been yes. quite successful. I think it's been a bit slower in arbitration, actually. But Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> Surprisingly, yeah. surprisingly, I think, because people would say, well, I did it the same way last time and the time before, so I'll do it the same way next time and the time after. <laughs> what COVID-19 has done is really propel what was an existing trend into mm. real overdrive because yes. the alternative to virtual hearings is backlog. It's very important to understand that. It applies a slightly different way to arbitration and to the courts. It's the same kind of problem that you end up at the end, say, of 2020, or indeed the end of 2021 or 2022, and you're far behind with the courts, the docket, or for um, arbitrations, or, you know, hearings not taking place, awards not being given up. You know, this would be very bad. And so it's really... Uh, moved forward very well. And I, I think the people are at the stage now of getting comfortable with the technology. You, you have to be prepared, yeah. by the way, for mishaps, links going down, <laughs> uh, people suddenly disappearing, maybe in mid-sentence and so on. That is going to be with us for quite a long time because Wi-Fi is not a perfect medium. It's a medium that gets interrupted. We're all much more relaxed, I think, now. You know, if we suddenly disappear, you know, it's just, okay, so we come back again. And that makes for a, a more relaxed environment. But I think what the real heart of your question is, is it going to kind of influence more than just delivery? Do you get to a place where the virtual hearing actually makes a contribution? Now, that, I yeah. think, is the really interesting point, because if we can see this in not just the kind of negative sense of coping with the global shutdown that the pandemic's produced, but making our commercial dispute resolution better, particularly better for the people who really matter, who are the parties and their disputes and their commercial relationships and all these things, then we're starting move into positive territory. And that, I think, is really quite promising. Yeah, 
I agree. I think that one particularly interesting test is to ask the clients whether they are happy that virtual hearing is available versus that we have to stick to physical ones. I think the survey really shown the vast majority of clients are happy. And this is demonstrating that the parties want to get the dispute resolved as quickly and as efficiently as possible, maybe not as perfectly as their advocate or their solicitors wanted them to, but it's resolved. That's important. They can move on with their life, especially this in the context of commercial dispute. I think this is something important to remember. As you said, uh, virtual hearing effectively contributes to a efficient resolution of dispute. I very much agree with that. And to go back to an earlier point that you made, of course, the client, the party can see more clearly what's happening. If you take the arbitration context, then the party's around the table and it's much more close up. But in a courtroom, it's different. And what it does in a way is it brings a kind of equality because everyone has got exactly the same view. And so I think party satisfaction is important in the way you mentioned. Crucially, there are the two big complaints about international commercial arbitration that we all know about. One, the time it takes, and two, the amount it costs. And here, I think we have to try to do a bit better than just saying, well, we're saving on airfares. Of course, we're saving on airfares, but that's not a, a very ambitious goal. We should really be looking at the technology to see how we can draw it out to bring real gains, how we can draw it out to get things done more speedily, how we can draw it out to cut costs in a real sense. And I think here, your point is very important that the longer things take, really the less satisfactory the outcome for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. As you are also speaking of other aspects of the benefit, I think in our last interview, it is also mentioned that potentially, if you could do hearing uh, virtually, you will have a larger talent pool to choose from in terms of expert witness, in terms of arbitrator availability, and it opens all sorts of possibilities to a bigger choices of people that you could work with for those hearings. So I thought that is also an interesting point, especially being a female with the children, I would think would be something that's very welcoming. Well, first of all, I think it would be very, very welcome to increase the pool of arbitrators in the way you mentioned. There's a, been a, a gender problem with international arbitration for a long time. A lot's been done to address it now. And uh, this could help in that regard. I think also we're now down to a really purely practical thing. But anyone who's tried to fix a hearing date for an international arbitration runs into endless problems with availability. And if you don't have to take into account travel, then that actually makes a big practical difference. But there's another point as well, and I think this goes to the substance of it. If we can use the technology to persuade people to make it all a bit shorter, do you yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. So counsel their submissions just a little bit shorter. The evidence is just a little bit briefer. So you concertina the hearing into a shorter time frame, then it's easier to get heard and finished. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, the survey respondents, they also quote screen fatigue, for example, as a challenge they're facing 
I think the large majority of them would propose a two-hour hearing or at least a take a break every two hours. So if you think of a two-hour section, then you can almost fit into any day and then the availability of hearing slots potentially really grows. Breaks have been quite common anyway because transcribers need breaks. There again, the time can't be far off, Jane, where we have AI systems that give a near-perfect transcription in real time. And so you won't need the break for that reason. But I agree with you. You certainly do need a a break from sitting at a a screen. And I personally think that uh, two hours is the absolute maximum. Most experienced people who give webinars say that, you know, an hour and a quarter is by the time it was over, where most people have gone anyway. You can't leave a hearing in the same way just because you're getting tired. But it's not fair on people to chain them to the screen. They need to uh, refresh themselves. They need a, a break. Even if you allow for all that, you can get more done. I mean, one thing we haven't mentioned, but of course, you're, you're very much aware of it. As we said at the beginning, you're in Shanghai evening. I'm in a London morning. It gets quite complicated if someone's in a New York and someone's in Hong Kong, as I had recently, because someone's got to get up very early and someone's got to stay up very late. And the problem is not so much. I think that people are not prepared, for example, to stay very late. But you do have to be a little bit careful that you don't overdo it so that people are being asked really to function in the middle of the night in a way that they can't properly function. These are issues we're all going to get so familiar with. We'll be able to sort them out and live with them. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think I have only one last question to ask you. Actually, I think we've covered it as well, just in case you have any other thoughts. I mean, based on your experience, can you call out one benefit to making more use of virtual hearings moving forward and one potential disadvantage? Do you have anything particular in mind um, in addition to what we talked about just now? If I could put it the other way around and say risk, I think we've got to be a little bit careful we don't lose the human element. Justice is a very human thing, and that's a very important thing for humans. So we must never allow the technology to take over. It always has to facilitate, and the aim is to have better hearings in the true sense of that word. So I think that's the first point I'd make. Now, just in terms of benefit, I'm going to make a point which perhaps may develop, but I hope that as we think again about what we're doing, not just tinkering, but in the post-COVID world, start to ask ourselves serious questions about how we're doing the whole dispute resolution process, because they'll be doing that in other fields of life. This is going to affect the way life is done through the world. Commercial dispute resolution is just a tiny aspect of that. But I would say if we can come through this by placing more of an emphasis on conciliation at an early stage, Mm. so that particularly parties, particularly parties with ongoing commercial relationships, do understand that conciliation is there. There is no need to get locked into a dispute if you don't have to. And all the professionals involved, trying to create a climate which enables that. If we could reach for that, 
that really yeah. would be a big contribution. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a in the last interview, we were also talking about alternative dispute resolution is going to be more popular just instead of going straight into court or into arbitration. People will think twice, think at least more about reconciliation and uh, not because of the procedural difficulties and everything posed by COVID-19. So hopefully that's a good thing to get people start thinking actually there is not one way to resolve the dispute. And that would be one thing good to take away from COVID-19. So thank you very much, Sir William. That's all I have for today. And it's really interesting to share all those experiences. I'm a little bit off the record now, but I think actually virtual hearing probably has less issue in China because we don't have such an adversarial kind of style court proceedings. And then you don't have extensive witness cross-examination and the rest made it and the documents are not as heavy I would say without the process of disclosure so I think it's a lot easier for our system to sort of warm up to virtual hearing than your system but hopefully I think all of us will catch up in due course. Thanks Jane it's been really nice talking to you.